ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Eric Anderson, and today I'm joined again by Dr. Brian Miller to discuss a new paper about origin of life from the University of Tokyo. Science Daily recently reported that researchers have for the first time been able to create an RNA molecule that replicates, diversifies, and develops complexity following Darwinian evolution. We talked last time about the research and the specific issues relating to that research and what it showed and didn't show about the origin of life. Today, we want to talk a little bit more about the implications of this research. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Brian, maybe you could give us just a real brief recap on what we talked about last time with this research from the University of Tokyo, talking about this RNA replicator Uh, Certainly. Some researchers at the University of Tokyo had published an article in Nature Communication, and they described an experiment they did. And they described it as they had this RNA they started with, and they describe it turning into this complex network of RNAs that increased in complexity and went through a Darwinian evolution type process. And I described last time how their description was a bit overstated. What really happened was they had an RNA sequence, which they called a host RNA, that they borrowed from a virus. They also provided all of the translational machinery from E. coli that took this RNA sequence and translated it into an essential component of what's called the replicase enzyme. And this replicase is what would actually replicate these RNA host sequences. The experimenters provided all the needed information to produce the replicase, and they provided all the machinery to promote replication. So all the experiment saw was that these host sequences would go through mutations, and that would result in replicase systems that would be more or less efficient at replicating different host enzymes. So they started with one function, and they ended with one function just with slightly different levels of efficiency in replicating particular molecules. Right. And and again, just to underscore efficiency, because what happened was many of the RNAs lost information, lost part of their sequence, became shorter, and therefore they were faster uh, and more easy to replicate. So they were therefore, quote unquote, more efficient. But it was really a loss of information and a loss of nucleotides in that case. And the, and the system kind of, um, they called it stabilized, but another word we could use is that it kind of, kind of bottomed out and stalled. <laughs> but yeah, thank, thanks for that, for that. So one of the things that happens, though, as we saw with this particular research, is that the press release goes out and says, hey, this is an amazing uh, proof of Darwinian evolution. And even some, you know, otherwise intelligent, really thoughtful people in science kind of buy into this. Uh, One of the individuals that you had mentioned, I think, in your writing was Dr. Stephen Novella. Tell us a little bit about him and and his blog. Yeah, well, so Stephen Novella is a professor at Yale, and he's a neurologist, and he he studies neurology. And he has his own blog where he talks about science. And that's where he described this research. But also, he helps to host a podcast called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And in this podcast, his goal is to help his audience to see past hype in news articles. So that's part of who he is. Right. And certainly a laudable goal. Um, It's a little bit ironic in this case, though, because how did he describe this research? Uh, You know, we're talking about seeing through the hype in in news articles. How did he describe the research? Yeah. And he had a blog post that was produced a few days after the press release. So this blog post is at March 21st, and it's titled Origins of Life from RNA. And let me just read right from the post. He says, this RNA network had the critical components of evolution, able to generate new information, greater complexity, and new variation. 
Further, there was a differential survival of those molecules better able to function in the network in order to self-replicate. This is in short evolution. Give it a few billion years and you might have something interesting. So again, what he does is he basically repeats the same claims from the press release. Mm-hmm. But again, as I talked about in the previous episode, is this is not an accurate depiction of the experiment. Yeah, it's certainly not going to evolve into something interesting because it's actually degrading over time. And as you mentioned uh, last time, there's a lot of researcher intervention and special experimental setup that needs to be done. And if you took this back to the early earth and threw it in the proverbial primordial soup, you end up with breakdown and smaller, smaller molecules and eventually dissipates. And that's a real critical point. I just want to mention this again, because it's so critical. Is he asked, well, maybe in billions of years, this would evolve into something interesting. Well, again, if you look at the same researchers in an earlier 2013 article, they describe in clear terms where this experiment heads. Because if you don't have very specific experimental protocols, but let's say you put this entire system into a beaker mm-hmm. or some sort of vat, what happens is when these host RNAs replicate, very often you'll produce copies that are smaller than the original. You actually lose the information which is needed for it to be translated into a useful component of the replicase enzyme. So they refer to these as parasitic RNAs, but a better term mm-hmm. would be non-functional or information lost RNAs. And what happens is over time, these smaller RNAs will take up the uh, attention of the replicase. They'll replicate much more efficiently. And eventually the system is dominated by these quote unquote parasites. And then replication drops to a speed that's so slow that the breakdown of the RNAs outpaces the replication. So the whole system collapses Mm. and will irreversibly degrade into simple molecules. So This experiment, if you don't have enormous amount of intervention, will will quickly break down to simple molecules. Yeah, and this this is a really good point you make, and it reminds me, you know, Jim Tour has done a lot of work in the origin of life area, and this idea that people have that, oh, we just need more time. You know, billions of years, you get something interesting, as Nobella said, or if we just give it more time, we'll, we'll generate something interesting. And I think one of the most important points that Tour has made in some of his presentations is that for organic chemistry, time is not the savior, it's the enemy. Things break down, uh, you have interfering reactions, they tend to degrade. And if you look at the protocols for building some of these, you know, nucleotide sequences that the companies are building these days, there's very specific protocols about how long it has to be in this particular, you know, reaction or at this temperature or with this pH and all of these very critical things that have to happen just at the right time. And if you're just adding time and throwing it into the mix, it doesn't help. It actually makes things worse and you're going to end up degrading the system. So that's a really important thing that I think our listeners need to understand because the naturalistic story is so based on this idea that, well, yeah, nothing interesting is happening based on what we're seeing now, but give it more time and and something interesting will happen. Yes. and, And that's one of the central points I like to talk about a lot is what happens is you take anything useful in a biological system, any of the structures, the components, the metabolic networks. And what happens is natural processes in any realistic environment, either today or back on the early earth, is going to break apart that system. Mm. It's going to degrade into simple chemicals, and you're going to move away from life, not towards it. In fact, I mentioned before in a previous podcast that Jeremy England has done a beautiful book called Life on Fire, and he describes this process. Molecules are constantly breaking apart. Enzymes are unfolding. And there has to be sophisticated machinery to keep pushing it back uphill thermodynamically to keep it stable. Yeah, I like the way you described it. That's that's really great. Really, really key point for everybody to understand. So I, I don't want to pick on Novella too much personally. Um, I, I do think it's ironic that he 
you know, has this podcast devoted to seeing through the hype of press releases, and yet he fell for it in this particular case. But why is it, Brian, that that so many, you know, otherwise intelligent people who should know better are falling for some of these claims about, you know, the hype about origin of life and, and how it, the evolution can produce these wonderful things if we just wait longer? Well, it's important to realize that the origin stories, whether it's the origin of life or the origin of complex animals, is not just a scientific theory. It's part of a larger narrative of reality. Some people would call the worldview a meta narrative, a religious belief system. So there's really sacred devotion towards these stories. So if there's any opportunity to reinforce or communicate these stories to the public, often uh, scientists like Stephen Novell, who's a committed atheist who wants to promote atheism, they will act less like research scientists and more like religious clergy. Mm. who are communicating the sacred story to the next generation of acolytes. So that's kind of why there's this deep enthusiasm to promote this origin of life narrative, even when the science doesn't really support it all that much. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it it means sometimes, and I think we all have to watch for this, but certainly in this case, it means that maybe the critical eye that should have been cast on some of the research gets ignored and gets passed over. And it's kind of given a, you know, a free pass, if you will, because it supports the narrative. There's another aspect, Brian, to this, which is kind of the way that things move so quickly these days. There can be an article or a paper or a news story that comes out and then suddenly it gets tweeted and blogged. And and, and the next thing you know, everybody thinks that there's this true statement that's gone out and it hasn't really been reviewed properly. Can you talk a little bit about this amplification of the hype? Uh, Certainly. And part of it is just human nature and just the nature of the press is because there's extraordinary pressure on people that are writing news articles to make it eye-catching, clickbait, yeah. something yeah. that really captures the attention. So there's an almost irresistible need to amplify claims. So what happens very often is there'll be a research article in a journal that may overstate a claim of their research, mm-hmm. but the news will pick up on that and they will amplify the overstatement so it becomes exaggerated. <laughs> yeah. Eventually it might end up on someone's blog, which then amplifies it even more. So it sort of takes a life of its own in the, in the culture. Yeah, yeah. And then that really underscores, I know it's hard work, but it really underscores the value. And I appreciate you doing it in this case, Brian, of going back to the original research and saying, what did these guys actually do? What did it actually show? That's really yeah, valuable. It, yeah. And, and it's really, what's really ironic is often you'll see this sort of critical analysis by other origin of life researchers. Hmm. Is what people don't realize is you have different origin of life camps. Some people like the RNA world hypothesis where everything started with RNAs that self-replicated. Other people prefer that proteins came first, and some people prefer that metabolism occurred first, and then this replication machinery came later. But what's fascinating is each camp, if they describe the other camp, will describe in very clear terms why the other camp has ideas that are completely implausible. (laughs) You'll have people like, a famous example is Robert Shapiro, who wrote an article, A Simpler View of the Origin of Life, of something along those lines. And he talked about how the production of RNA or any of these complex chemicals on the early earth is exceedingly difficult because you have to have not just the right conditions, but a whole series of the right conditions carefully orchestrated. Mm -hmm. In fact, he used the analogy that reading these origin of life research papers is often like a person who plays an 18 hole round of golf and then claims that the ball could play the round of golf by itself if the right wind and and conditions really happen. So that's, that's where you actually hear the real accurate critiques. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. 
So, Brian, in the last couple of minutes, and maybe we can um, hopefully someday come back and talk about this in more detail on its own, but just in the last couple of minutes, I know that the Jim Tour himself had done some work on trying to come up with a self-replicating RNA a few number of years ago, I think it was. Do you want to just describe that real briefly and what he found? Oh, certainly. And let me just emphasize why this question of self-replicating molecules is so important. Because if you read Origin Life researchers, many of them are honest about the fact that nature isn't going to produce life. It's just these natural processes just don't do what needs to happen. So what they do is they invoke natural selection as a designer substitute. So in the same way Darwin used natural selection to replace design in the evolution of life, Origin of Life researchers imposed natural selection to replace a designer in the origin of life. And the challenge is how do you get a self-replicating molecule, something that self-replicates is simpler than a cell? Well, James Tour actually was commissioned to do that. He had a grant to create a self-replicating molecular system, and it wasn't anything that looked like life. He was using other molecules. But what happened is he found that it was just completely impractical because here's the challenge. You have to start with you know, pristine experimental conditions, highly pure concentrations of the right molecules, and then you have to start with this chain of molecules. Uh, we'll just call them uh, elements for, for simplicity. And you have to get this one chain to replicate into another chain with this, the same sequence of elements. And what, what James Tour found was it was incredibly difficult because you would always have errors. You would always have the wrong molecules. They would combine in the wrong place. So that's why in actual cells, you don't just simply have really complex machinery to, let's say, a replicate DNA or RNA, but you've got error correction mechanisms. Mm-hmm. You have multiple error correction mechanisms that have to go back and ensure that the replication was done accurately. So of course, there's no way you're going to have error correction on the early Earth. So that's why this is so difficult, even in an experimental lab. Can we just point out the irony here for a minute, Brian? <laughs> you know, if you look at what actually happens in biology, you pointed out that our cells have these machines that are fighting against the uh, thermodynamic challenges that they're facing, that are fixing things that are broken. You mentioned that when we're doing translation or copying of our genome, that we have to have error correction mechanisms in place, and there are multiple error correction mechanisms in place in living organisms. It's just incredibly ironic that living organisms are fighting valiantly against these effects of breakdown and these effects of mutations. And yet the evolutionary story is that those are the things that gave rise to all this stuff in the first place. It's the errors, the mutations, you know, the things that happened, copying errors that made all of this come about in the first place. It's just incredibly ironic. Yeah, it is. It's remarkably ironic. And it's also amazing how at, at least an unconscious level, origin of life researchers are starting to realize this. I talked in previous podcasts about Michael Russell, who is one of the leading origin of life researchers. He he talks about this idea of of alkaline thermal vents. And in his description of life, he states very clearly that very little that happens in a cell happens naturally. It has to be managed. There has to be complex machines which Mm -hmm. channel energy in a specific way. And he even says it has to be according to an organizational design. And this is the key point. When people talk about things like self-organization or emergence in nature, like a tornado emerging or self-organizing, it's because there's natural processes that help to lead to these patterns. But in life, what happens is everything conforms to an organizational blueprint, a design pattern. 
And it's an incredibly complex pattern because if you look at the minimal complexity of self-replication, it's, it's incredibly, uh, you have to have incredibly advanced machinery. So everything in life is forced to operate in a way that's in complete contradiction to what it would normally do without these enzymes and machines forcing it to do so. That's the irony that life by its very nature is defined by blueprints or uh, design logics that force it to act against what nature wants it to do. So the whole attempt to find a natural origin of life is flawed right from the beginning. I love it. Very well said. Very well said. Well, Brian, thanks so much for being with us again. This has been really helpful to understand this research and to understand a little bit better how we can be more careful in our assessment of it and not buy into the hype. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us for this episode of ID the Future. To learn more about the origin of life and the evidence for design and purpose in nature, check out other episodes as well as our YouTube channel, Discovery Science. If you find these discussions to be a valuable contribution to the public conversation about origins, consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.